Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, we took a legal look at the lifestyles of the rich, famous, and furry. When world-renowned fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld died last week, he left behind a legacy spanning decades, as well as a reportedly sizable inheritance for his Instagram-famous cat. It's not an uncommon move for well-off pet owners to leave behind parts of their fortune to their animals, and Lagerfeld is not the first. He joins the likes of Michael Jackson and Alexander McQueen. To find out how exactly the financing works, we spoke with estate attorney Christopher Burns about the law behind pet inheritance. We see uh, pets often treated by their owners as children, and they want to provide for them not just during their lifetime, but uh, after they've passed, whether it's to provide for the pet to go to a, a loved one or a friend or to create a trust or to find an organization that might care for the pet for the rest of its life. It's uh, very important to the pet owners who are spending billions of dollars every year on their animal to make sure that it's well taken care of. Okay, uh, Christopher, this raises another question, um, and not to extrapolate too far. There's one thing about taking care of a pet. There's another thing leaving $100 million to said pet. And at what point uh, is there sort of a question of the, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but the mental status of the person who is putting that in their will, and how is that dealt with? Well, sure, and you saw this with Leona Helmsley when she died. Uh, She left a a tremendous sum to her uh, Maltese uh, trouble, and uh, (laughs) the New York courts looked at that uh, rather carefully and and eventually reduced the amount uh, that was set aside for trouble, uh, who at trouble's death still had a a very ample fortune that uh, was directed to go to charity upon, upon the dog's demise. Gunther the Fourth is a particular one that Remain brought up. Was left three millions and managed to increase that by investing it in real estate. Now clearly there is someone looking after Gunther who is then making those investment <clears throat> decisions. How do you lay this all out in a will? How do you make sure that once you've passed, the money is looked after correctly? Actually manages to make you some more money on the back of it, and indeed <laughs> it, it goes to where you want it to go, and not just frivolous nature of those who've been left in charge of your dog. Sure, sure. Uh, uh... So I, I didn't represent Gunther in his transactions, but uh, um, what I've seen uh, work very well for people over the years is you name a, a trustee to be the overseer of the of the funds, the money, and you name a custodian to you know make requests on behalf of the animal for the things that the animal might need, um, and so that it can live in the lifestyle that it's accustomed to, whether it's Gunther or Chappet uh, or. Um, or whether it was trouble, you know, they have a certain standard of living that they're used to and the uh, creator of the instrument uh, wants to provide for them to have that experience for the rest of their life. Uh, So we spend a lot of time talking with clients uh, who want to leave money for pets as to how much is enough and and how much is is too much. Uh, I don't know if it's the frugality of Minnesotans uh, 
Typically, I have to talk to them about increasing the gift, not decreasing it, but I don't think for Mr. Lagerfeld's uh, beloved cat that will be a problem. And do the laws sort of allow for enough protection? Because when you look at Gunther with $375 million, probably a better investing track record than most uh, Wall Street managers, how do you ensure that that money doesn't get pilfered off for something other than what the owner uh, had intended it, uh, intended it for? Sure, sure. And that's where it's important to have that, that check and balance. So in my example, with a custodian and a trustee, I encourage clients to never name the same individual to, to take care of the animal as well as to watch uh, the animal's finances. I always encourage them to have you know, uh, separation of powers, as it were. So you have somebody that's taking care of the animal and the trustee overlooking and watching to make sure that the animal is being well taken care of uh. and vice versa. And uh, that tends to uh, work rather well. And we also um, oftentimes, as strange as it sounds, you know, we'll provide for animals to have visitation. Say the, the child uh, or the uh, pet is going to one person as custodian yeah. and maybe the uh, decedent has children that the, they can check in on the animal and make sure that it's being uh, well taken care of. So it can be as complicated as some child support type of agreements as, as you might imagine to provide for the care and nurturing of that beloved animal. Chris, we have a, a question from a viewer. Uh, it's a legitimate question. Uh, what are your thoughts about just simply ignoring the, uh, the bestowing of 100 or $300 million to, uh, to a pet, considering that it is an animal that is not making their own decisions and uh, probably, I mean, let's be clear, won't be doing their own investing. <laughs> sure, sure. And, and you know, uh, uh, what uh, strikes our sensibilities uh, can vary from situation to situation. Um, all 50 states in the United States, and I understand some, of, some European countries as well, have created an ability to have some enforceable rights. Now, as I mentioned, New York uh, reduced the gift for trouble, uh, finding that it was clearly ex in excess of what the, the Maltese uh, could ever need. And so there is a role to, you know, adjust things if they are excessive. Uh, but, you know, clients of mine that love their pets, you know, don't want them to, uh, you know, be uh, cremated or, or otherwise euthanized upon their death and, and buried with them, but want them to live uh, the rest of their natural lives. And that was, you know, something that Mr. Lagerfeld even said during his lifetime, that yeah. only if his uh, beloved cat had preceded him in death would he want his uh, cremains uh, mixed with his uh, pet. Otherwise, he had indicated he'd want uh, Chappette to live a long and happy life. Then we spoke with Nobel laureate Robert Schiller. The Yale economics professor came on after Fed Chair Jay Powell's first day of testimony on Capitol Hill and discussed monetary policy and why he thinks the U.S. economy is due for recession. Well, the economy has been growing pretty smoothly, uh, and so uh, he's right in a way. There are some signs, though, that there might be things amiss. Uh, for you know, the, the the housing market is is soaring, and the stock market is high. Uh, it's been a long time <laughs> that we've been in this uh, recovery period, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was a recession. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting coming out of uh, the testimony today was Powell seemed to admit, I think what a lot of us know already is that the Fed really does seem to not have a handle on what's going on with the labor market, or at least uh, a better way to sort of explain uh, why we haven't seen some of the more traditional pressures bubble up when you have such a tight labor market. How do you sort of account uh, for what's taking place there when you have unemployment so low, but you don't necessarily see some of the inflationary pressures that would normally come along with that? 
Well, the relation between inflation and unemployment is a famous one, the most famous relation in economics. I wish it were a more reliable one. <laughs> if you look at A.W. Phillips' early paper, it doesn't fit very well. <laughs> there are lots of surprises. It has something to do with the way we form inflationary expectations. Uh, and uh, it has some, maybe something to do with uh, inflation targeting that central banks now trumpet all the time. So, so inflation stays at 2%. What should we look at, therefore, in terms of economic data signals that are going to harbinger the recession that you say that potentially were due after almost 120 months of no recession, which would be the record long streak? Yeah, so that, that's an interesting question. Why do recessions just keep coming? They're not quite cyclical, and the cycle seems to be getting longer. So the, the 120 month expansion was between 1991 and 2001, recently. So, you know, maybe these are just gradually getting longer. On the other hand, once we pass this and we're in record territory, it's going to kind of seem like the market, uh, the, the uh, recession is overdue. Just like it has seemed when we had the longest bull market that was announced last year in the stock market. People start getting a little edgy about this, and maybe it's time for another recession. Well, going back to what you said about the Phillips curve, one of the most famous relationships in economics, and it's really great except the fact that it doesn't seem to work, <laughs> what does a central bank do? I mean, this seems to be foundational to the idea of a dual mandate, balancing price stability along with right. full employment, this idea that the two are somehow in tension. But look, we're at, what, 4% unemployment, inflation has been mild forever, the F central bank continues to year after year overestimate when inflation is going to come. So just what does the modern central banker do to uh, try to get ahead of risks, for inflation risk? Uh, well, I, I would say keep, uh, if I were him, I would probably do the same thing. Uh, right now, the funds rate is, uh, you know, it's in a range between two and a quarter and two and a half percent. With a two percent target, that's putting your uh, real interest rate as the difference between those at three eighths, about three eighths of one percent. So it seems low, but it's not creating inflation. So it would be hard to argue for doing anything other than stay the course at this time. So, Professor Schiller, I want to talk a little bit about debt because Powell today pretty much made it clear that at least he doesn't think that the idea that deficits don't matter is necessarily uh, one that we should all embrace. And when you look at sort of, you know, government debt relative to GDP, I mean, it has shot up pretty significantly since the financial crisis. It's well above long term averages. And I wonder that is there a point uh, where it does have to become uh, an impediment to growth uh, rather than something that we can just sort of work around? Of course, if interest rates start going up, then the, de the, the debt servicing will look like a bigger problem. Uh, there, yeah, there's kind of a moral quality toward debt. Uh, you know, you can go into debt for a long time and people don't realize what's happening. They observe us, uh, you know, all the benefits of borrowing. Uh, it goes back to Thomas Jefferson. You know, people said that we have to maintain some kind of stability in, the, in the, our debt. We've kind of lost sight of that now, and I think it's very unfortunate. I agree with Powell. It's, it's something that has to be corrected. Unfortunately, the Fed isn't the primary uh, place to do that. It's, it's Congress that determines these things. I want to turn attention to housing because, of course, Case Schiller was today, the data that shows that the housing market isn't 
perhaps where we thought it is, we are seeing a slowing in significance when even though we've seen mortgage rates come down is this surprising you and and what do you think of the housing market is this signaling more concern to come or are we at troughing right now the mortgage rate has come down but a little bit you know i, I don't know how big an influence that is uh there uh What strikes me as much bigger than the mortgage rate changes is the fact that we have been going through the biggest housing boom, actually the third biggest housing boom since 1890, when my data began. The biggest was from 1997 to 2007. But then before that, there was one in the 1940s. But this is the third, it's big. Uh, so what's going on here? How can home prices, they're, they're at record levels in nominal terms. Uh, why did this happen? Why did it go up so strongly after the financial crisis? Uh, it, there's multiple reasons, but it does su- suggest a, um, a, a little bit of disquiet about home prices. And now that they're starting to slow down and they're starting to fall, even with seasonal adjustment corrections, they're falling right now in San Diego, San Francisco, and Seattle. Uh, and other studies, other cities are right on the borderline of that. Yeah. So it seems to me that you know the market has gotten a little out of uh, pace with itself. And if it starts falling more, that will bring back memories of the financial crisis. Not That's memories. not a forecast, it's a concern. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Equity Zen works closely with many unicorns by providing them with a secondary market for pre-IPO investment from accredited investors looking to get access before they go public. CEO Atish Davda came on to talk about his firm's work and the IPO landscape for the year ahead, as headlines keep trickling about highly anticipated names, from Lyft, Uber, to the fitness bike company Peloton. We started by asking him about the appetite he's seeing from investors. Demand and supply, by the way. So on both sides, there's been a lot of activity. Equity Zen has, you know, helped just in the last year uh, over 16 issuers that have gone that have exited either via an IPO or via M&A. And a lot of the shareholders that didn't want to wait until 2018 to take a few chips off the table were able to get that access through Equity Zen's platform. And many accredited investors who knew the companies, but didn't want to wait until the company was public, wanted to basically get off the sidelines and into the game, were able to do that by coming to our platform. One of the extraordinary things about this crop of uh, IPOs is they're so big and fairly mature, at least by the standards of historical IPOs, where companies previously went public much earlier in their life. But there's still pretty serious questions about the business models of these companies and whether they work and whether they make money, which is something pretty fundamental. How concerned are investors at this point about buying into companies whose business models are still, I would say, unproven? And in your view, is that a uh, fair concern? Yeah, you know, Amazon really bucked the trend with a lot of this. I mean, Amazon was, uh, for about 15 years after going public, kept clocking in break-even or even negative earnings, which was unheard of. But what you saw was a tremendous amount of revenue growth. 
And at equities, and one of the factors we look at a lot of times is not only how much demand is uh, you know, accruing in the private market, but also what are some of the growth factors of these companies. And one of the things we see is with the advent of technology in almost every industry, it's becoming a lot more accepted if you have fast growth, if you can demonstrate positive unit economics, but not necessarily profitability. Yeah. If that gap is because of market growth and expansion and you're going, a company like Uber is uh, available in, I think, like 110 countries around the world. Yeah. I mean, if you can demonstrate that growth and that scale, then the investors in the public markets will often look past the near-term net income loss. That's a good point, but it's also a, a point that a lot of people have criticized because when you bring up Amazon, yeah. Amazon came public at a much different stage in its right. life. And when you look at some of the companies, particularly like the Ubers and Lyfts, these are relatively mature companies. They're coming to market with incredibly high valuations, assuming they, they do uh, indeed come to market. Is appetite going to be there? And, and more importantly, are investors going to give them a pass, the same pass that they gave on Amazon? That's a good question. If you take a look at Amazon's valuation relative to its revenue, I mean, those multiples are completely eye-watering. Mm. Relative to that, you see companies like Uber uh, and many in its ilk actually, uh, you know, I wouldn't say trading, but being valued at around 10 times price to sales. Now, 10 is not a small number, obviously, but relative to some of the, um, you know, some of the trends that Amazon was able to buck, it's not unreasonable. I mean, you're talking about a company like Uber that's, uh, that's clocking in over $11 billion in revenue. Uh, a company like Lyft, Equities and Estimates, uh, that it's going to clock in around $2 billion this year. These are not small sums of money. So Amazon went public at $16 million in revenue 20 years ago. $16 million. $16 million wow. in, in revenue, which is, I mean, which is bonkers. If you think about it today, you have a company here that's uh, clocking in at least a billion dollars in revenue being considered for the public markets. Atish, what are some of the key concerns, apart from like not being profitable, are some of the, com- the accredited investors flagging? Mm. Many were worried when you look back at Snap, the owner of Snapchat, too much control by the founder. What- yeah. You know, once again, this seems to be echoed from previous Alphabet, Facebook. How much are we seeing this crop wanting to keep CEO power? And is this a worry for investors? Uh, you know, it's certainly a consideration that every investor should pay attention to. How much control do I have? The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that with a company like Snap, um, you didn't necessarily have the, uh, the, 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 the demonstrable revenue Mm. that some of these other companies have. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars at least in order to be considered for an IPO. In this case, we're talking about firms that are putting in well over a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, a lot of these companies that are coming public, they're famous. They're kind of, they're sexy companies. Yeah. Do you see a premium from these company people wanting to invest while they're private yeah. because they just want to get in? And is there in the past where maybe companies paid a valuation penalty yeah. for having illiquid shares, whether there's a, a premium because they're sort of exclusive and hard to get? Um, there are... Uh, it's, it's more common to have a discount on the valuation, the haircut you're talking about, yeah. because of the illiquidity, mm-hmm. than it is to see a premium. So even though there's overwhelming demand for these companies, yeah. I think we're talking about accredited investors, generally fairly sophisticated. They tend to know what they're getting themselves into. They're not going to want to try and find themselves over their skis too often. And so they say, hey, look, yes, I'm getting an early, but that doesn't mean I'm willing to overpay too much for it. The world may be achieving some progress towards female empowerment, but women continue to suffer discrimination and violence in every part of the world. And the United Nations is putting that issue front and center. Maria Espinosa is a writer, a poet, and a diplomat. She's also the first woman from Latin America and the Caribbean to preside over the General Assembly. 
I sat down with the new UNGA president to ask her how the UN is addressing gender inequality. I have uh, first uh, chosen a theme for this year, which is to make the UN relevant for all. Uh, the relevance issue is extremely important and we're living a, a world that is very uh, complex, uh, interconnected uh, crisis. So we really need to deliver for the people we serve. So bring, my, my purpose is to bring the UN closer to the people and the people also closer to the UN. But I also uh, selected seven priorities uh, out of the huge agenda that the UN has. That includes gender equality and the empowerment of women, migrants and refugees, climate change, plastic pollution, to work with youth and the role of youth in peace and security, decent work, revitalization of the United Nations system to deliver better. Uh, these are among my seven uh, priorities uh, this year. The, the rights of persons with disabilities as well. So seven priorities to work seven days a week and deliver for the people that uh, we represent. That is a really long to-do list. Uh, yes. You're halfway through your Absolutely. term right now. How much? Not have. I halfway? still have, uh, no, no, I still have eight months more to go. Okay, less than but halfway yes, through. Less than half, yes. So how much of that agenda have you delivered or are you, do you feel you're working on getting delivered? Well, we have had several very high points in the agenda. I put together a, a advisory group on gender equality. We just had a, a meeting uh, last week that was very successful. I gathered uh, strong women from around the globe, uh, from uh, the Arab countries, from Africa, from Latin America, uh, vice presidents, uh, just to guide me and advise me on how to move forward with the gender parity agenda. Mm -hmm. So we had the, the meeting last week. We approved uh, the Global Compact on Migration, the Global Compact on Refugees, the program of work of the Paris Agreement, mm -hmm. meaning a rule book to implement the Paris Agreement on climate change. Climate change is one of the major threats uh, to, to humankind and to our uh, potential to develop and, and, and live uh, in harmony as a planet and, and as a species, of course. So it's very important, uh, the climate agenda and what we were able to achieve in Poland uh, as well the, the declaration for the rights of, of peasants and rural communities. So we have done a lot this only four months. Uh, we still have uh, a lot to do in the, the eight months that are uh, still uh, you know to go until the end of the session but the agenda is extremely you know busy but mm. we really want to deliver we really want to show what is the value added of the United Nations. What's the gender breakdown of the General Assembly? Is it 50-50 or is it more lopsided than that? The gender... The gender, the gender breakdown of the UNGA. Well, uh, among, I have to say that among 193 member states, mm -hmm. uh, we have about 40 female ambassadors. Uh, we have a secretary general that is very committed to gender parity. So the highest, at the highest level of management at the mm -hmm. UN, we have 50-50 gender parity. At the national level, uh, our country representatives, UN country representatives, we have 50-50. But the world needs to do a lot more. Yes. You know, if you only consider that 20 out of 193 are female presidents and heads of state, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I have invited them, the 20 of them, to come to New York for the 12th of March for a big high-level event on women in politics and women in power. 
I wonder, I ask because I wonder how receptive the General Assembly is overall to uh, the many points, the specific points on your agenda which have to do with gender equality. There are a lot of pressing issues, as you know right now, uh, with the environment, with the climate, with uh, overall economic inequality. And I wonder how high, uh, for many countries, gender equality ranks for them. I think it is an important matter because our um, roadmap is the 2030 agenda, the, the 17 sustainable development goals. One of them, of course, being about uh, gender equality. But if you are to, to have a sustainable development, mm -hmm. an inclusive uh, sustainable development, you cannot leave 50% of the population behind. So it, it is an important matter. It's an important issue. It is about the economic empowerment of women. It is about equal pay, equal job between men and women around the world. And for that, we need the highest level possible of political commitment uh, of our, our leaders. That's why the 12th of March, when we will gather the presidents and, and heads of state, this is the message that we want to convey. And also, you know, a very strong need, which is the need to uh, have uh, zero tolerance to any form of violence against women. Uh, we are seeing that uh, one out of three women and girls around the world have suffered or will suffer uh, some form of violence or discrimination in, in their lifetime. So mm -hmm. it, it is something that we really need to address seriously because it has to do with creating more democratic, inclusive, sustainable societies. Now, this is your second tour of duty in New York because in 2008 you were the permanent representative of Ecuador to the United Nations. After that, you returned home to serve your country. Now you're back as president of the UNGA. Compare and contrast the differences that you see uh, the UN serving the world now versus back in 2008. Well, I remember when I was here in 2008, 2009, we, we had to witness the international financial crisis. If you remember, well, you're very young, but uh, there was a lot of commitment uh, of the international community, of the multilateral institutions, of the UN to address the international financial crisis sure. in the proper way. And now we are facing a different moment, but I, I would say uh, a moment of a lot of stress in the international arena, lots of conflicts, uh, difficulties to get, um, to get agreement on the fundamental issues, um, I, and I, I would say um, survival challenges such as the issue of climate change which is really not improving our emissions record is not going well so we need we know we need to uh, raise our ambition in terms of our climate commitments we see more inequality around the world mm -hmm. uh, recent uh, figures are really scary you know that uh, 26 you know, the, the wealthiest 26 people, they own half of the wealth uh, of around the world. Uh, hunger is increasing. Uh, so we, we are able to produce uh, uh, more, more food than we actually need to feed everybody. Mm -hmm. But still, we, hunger levels are, are, are increasing. I mean, the situation is not the best. That's why the United Nations, the house of multilateralism, has to deliver more and better. We are undergoing a very deep, profound reform process in-house, yes. which I think is, is extremely important. And we are doing our best 
to be more efficient, more transparent, to have um, a response capacity that can accompany uh, the very hard times that we're living today. And I'm glad you bring that up because I wonder how frustrating it must be for you, for the UN as a body, to see the United States, which is, of course, such a big, plays such a big role in the United Nations, to be pushing back on a lot of the priorities that you spoke of. Not that the U.S. doesn't agree with it. It perhaps just doesn't rank as highly under the current administration. Well, I would say that uh, the success of the UN and the success of multilateralism depends very much on the political will of 193 member states. They're all important, and of course, the US is our host country. Uh, it is a very important partner, and I think that they are. They have their own their agenda, which is important. I mean, they have a very strong agenda on human rights. They they are um, interested on the humanitarian work of the United Nations. They're big funders also of, of the humanitarian aid. Uh, of, of the United Nations. And some issues, well, they, they are not ready, you know, to be part of, for example, uh, the Paris Agreement or the Global Compact on Migration. But it doesn't mean that the country as such is not doing its, its share. It's not doing its share because cities, uh, there is a big coalition of cities within the United States that are ready to deliver on the Paris Agreement, commit to combat climate change, so they are committed. They're also committed uh, to the migration agenda. So perhaps the country as, as a whole is not prepared by uh, individual states and cities uh, around the United States are uh, really very committed to the, to the UN agenda and to, to uh, the rights agenda that we stand for. All right, so local governments might be the better place to, to work with. Talk about the role of the private sector then in advancing the priorities that you discussed, especially when it comes to gender equality. Oh, very important. Uh, when uh, we need billions to deliver on the sustainable development goals and the 2030 agenda. And these billions, of course, the, the main responsibility lies on member states, on, on states, but mm -hmm. also a big share uh, has to be, a big role has to be played by, by, the, by the private sector. If you look at the decent work target, for 2030, we need to create 600 million new jobs. Uh, the majority of them for younger generations. So who is going to create the 600 million job, new jobs that we need? Mm -hmm. The private sector has a big role to play. Has a big role to play on uh, our new energy matrices, on green economies, investing on the green sector. So they have a very, very important role to play. And on gender equality, I have to tell you, they're not doing very well. Uh, last, uh, last information we have is uh, out of the 500 biggest companies only 24 female are CEOs. Yeah. So this is really a, a, a giving a strong message that the private sector needs to do more and better in terms of gender equality. Now, you are the fourth woman and the first from Latin America and the Caribbean to preside over the UNGA. What do you do or what do you have to do that's different from, say, one of your male predecessors? I, I'm just curious about the actual work of the UNGA president. How do you convince member states to sign on to your priorities? And how is that different from what you, uh, from a male 
um, president? Well, first of all, as, as uh, it's already known, one of the, the centers of, of my effort of, of, the, uh, of my work is to put the gender equality uh, agenda at the core of everything we do. Mm-hmm. On the climate uh, agenda, gender equality is a part of that. On the decent work, uh, equal pay, equal job, I mean, everything, uh, the cross-cutting theme is uh, gender parity and the empowerment of women. That's the first thing. And also, I think sometimes the issue of numbers are very important, the issue of quotas, percentages. But I think that quality in terms of the exercise of leadership is extremely important to deliver, uh, to do what we said we were going to do. It's, all, it's not always easy because I depend on the political will and the support of 193 states. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to, to bring together 193 uh, and to commit uh, to the issues. And, but basically, we are pushing hard. I think that the UN is capable, really, of responding to the current challenges. There is no other way to respond to uh, terrorism, to human trafficking, to climate change, to disarmament mm-hmm. issues if we do not work together. The best place uh, to work together is precisely the United Nations and the General Assembly, which is the Parliament of Humanity. Uh, I have the privilege to lead the Parliament of Humanity and to gather the political will and the agreements to make sure that we have progress in in the agenda that we we have uh, committed ourselves, such as the 2030 Agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.